Welcome. Welcome back to the bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. And if you are an aficionado of this uh, of this podcast, uh, <laughs> we, we're glad to have you with us again. We are going to have to come up with like 950 billion interesting ways to kick this off uh, other than the word welcome. Bienvenidos. Bienvenidos, listeners. So, yes, welcome. I am Kate Gibson. I'm the daughter. And we have what I think will be a treat for all of our listeners uh, today. Sue Miller is with us. She is one of the great American institutions in writing. She has written, I don't know how many novels, I think more than a dozen. I started reading her in 1986, I believe, with The Good Mother, which was her first published novel. And it caused an enormous sensation. The paradoxes that were presented to her as a mother and the lies and the perceptions that she had to deal with, I thought it was an extraordinary book. Her latest book is Monogamy which caused something of a sensation when it came out. We talked about Mary Laura Philpott being my touchstone for children, how honestly Mary Laura Philpott writes about children and nonfiction. Sue Miller, for me, is the writer about marriage. She understands the intimacies, the complexities, how marriages grow, how they fail, how spouses start to rub up against each other. There's a raw intimacy and that implies sexuality. I don't mean sexuality. There's a raw intimacy that's almost voyeuristic to her books. And I felt that very much after reading The Good Mother, which was my first Sue Miller book. After I read it, I thought, boy, there were some conversations that I wasn't supposed to have witnessed there. Like, I almost felt vaguely dirty witnessing some of the very private conversations that go on amongst ex-husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, her character exploration and the way her characters relate to one another within the institution of marriage and within nuclear families is really complex and beautiful. There are a number of things there that you said that I totally agree with. The intimacy word is precise. Sometimes I do feel like an interloper in the thoughts of her That's characters. She has an unbelievably perceptive way, I think, of distinguishing between what a character is presenting on the outside and what that character's internal thoughts may be. She writes well about men characters, but I think her female characters are brilliant at times. Boy, can I associate with what her characters are thinking, A. And B, I am just stunned by her ability with just a couple of not sentences, but just clauses to be able to describe a situation, the emotion of the situation, the thoughts of the situation and the surroundings of the situation. The little thing she notices sets a scene about as well as any author I've ever encountered. I think with a few others who have female writers who are writing, I think she stands with the best. I think she does too. You know, we've talked about there's no one way. There's a lot of, there's no one way to write a book. There's no one way to do a podcast. Sue Miller's thesis, I think, is there's no one way to do a marriage. I mean, there's even discussions of open marriages and wives who are friends with ex-wives. And like, there's no one size fits all for marriage. And you're right that there is a great contrast between what's outside and what's inside. I think a great demonstration of that is my personal favorite Sue Miller book, The Lakeshore Limited. The Lakeshore Limited, you are privy to all sorts of knowledge that the characters aren't privy to because you read all of the characters' thoughts. And again, sometimes I'm a little bit like, boy, I don't want to know so much because there's that raw intimacy, which almost makes me uncomfortable. But she's amazing. As I say, she captures the subtlety, the complexity, the unspoken as well as the spoken in marriage, I think, as well as any writer I've ever read. 
Yeah, I wrote Sue, actually, just about a week ago. And I said, because of her ability to get inside the head of her characters, I feel like I know them. And because she is so good at writing that, I feel like I know her. I have met her a couple of times. She was a guest on Good Morning America a couple of times. I don't feel like I know her in the way that you know a good friend, but I feel like I know her because of the way I have enjoyed her books, and I feel like I know her as a writer. I I extrapolate, I guess, something from what her characters feel to what she may feel. Uh, I think that's an extraordinary thing, and uh, I I think it's a rare quality for an author. Uh, Here's our conversation with the wonderful Sue Miller. Sue Miller, we always say it's a pleasure to have our guests in the bookcase, but in your case, an honor since Kate and I have read and admired, really loved so much of what you have written. 1986, The Good Mother, all the way through monogamy. That's 35 years, a long body of work. How have you changed over 35 years as a writer? I feel much sure of myself as a writer. I, mean, I felt the good mother, I was sort of teaching myself how to write a novel. I'd written actually two earlier novels, one in my 20s and one in sort of my mid-30s. And they were both bad. So I didn't, I never, I never showed them. Well, I showed them to a few people, but even as I was doing that, I knew I didn't, wouldn't want these to sort of go out in the world. And I feel as though with the third one, which was The Good Mother, I felt as though I'd learned many things that I could not and should not do as a writer in a novel. And that didn't strike me as so odd because it usually takes you a few tries at a short story, for instance, before you master that really difficult form. So why shouldn't it take you a few tries with a novel? I said to myself, after like four or five years doing this, why shouldn't it? But I did feel that I was slowly instructing myself And I feel as though that's gone on in one way or another, that I've learned to get better as a writer. So when you go back and you read Good Mother and then maybe read Monogamy, can you say after these years that you are a better writer? I think I would, yeah. I don't say that about all of the books I've written. I mean, I think some of them hold up to compare well with Monogamy, but I certainly felt the earlier novels that I'd written sort of were vague and gossamer thin, you know, a small idea stretched out <laughs> to make a novel to last enough pages. So where does it start for you? I've heard you describe your work as character-driven. So does it start with a character you want to share with your readers, or does it start with a story you want to tell? It just starts with a sort of idea, usually. For instance, the second novel I wrote was called Family Pictures, and the second novel that I published was called Family Pictures. And my idea in that one was to have, I'd felt so enclosed by the end of The Good Mothers in the first person. So you're sort of stuck in the brain of that person when you do first person. You can't have any perceptions that aren't hers. She's in charge of things in a certain way, although I was in charge of her. So I felt very much that I, for several reasons, I didn't want to do something that was like that. I felt as though first my publishers would have probably liked me to do something that was rather like that because I thought, They liked how well that sold, and they liked it, too. And I was just determined not to be sort of imprisoned in a certain mode of fiction or something like that. So that was just 
as different as it could have been from the good mother, which had a, you know, a trial at the center of it. And I've sort of proceeded that way, wanting to have to be t- talking about something different with each book. And often as a result of that, or in connection with it, to try to structure it very differently. Like there's a book called The Lakeshore Limited, which has a long passage about each of the characters, four characters. You see them, you get to know them, and then you see some of the events of the novel from several different perspectives, and not at the same time, but as you meet this character and then you meet this character as they interact to some degree. And that was really interesting and fun for me to do. Lakeshore Limited, which, by the way, is my favorite. Not that I should have a favorite, but it is my favorite. You seem to have a real intimate knowledge of your characters in your books. How do you get to know your characters before you start to write? I make a lot of notes. I write in longhand for the whole books. And I sort of stop actually in the middle of some passage and just make some notes now about what this, maybe he could be doing this instead of this they're doing here. And they're just things that I feel would be, hey, well, it might be better for the novel, but I also feel be more likely for that character to do. I try to imagine them as deeply as I can. That's really all it is, trying to understand why they might feel and behave the way they do. And even with this, a character who's a murderer in another one of my novels. And I gave him the best shot I could in terms of his explaining himself to another character, his having made his life around trying to atone in some sense or another for this quite terrible thing he did as a very young man, very wounded young man. But I wanted to understand him. I thought that was really interesting. All I do is sit here in this room the rest of the time. Am I correct? Are you describing Eli in While I Was Gone? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was sympathetic with him. I really was. I felt he was just so, he was in this sort of group of very <laughs> dynamic young, other young people. And he was sort of the the scientific nerd among them in a certain way. And yet he was in love with one of them who briefly took up with him because that's what she did, <laughs> essentially. And he was very, very pained by that. I mean, it was just a tremendous loss for him. He sort of abandon him. Kate raises the issue that you say you take notes. When you take notes about a character, do you know where you're going to end with that character? Yes. In a rough way. I know what I want the reader to feel. And it isn't that I could articulate that clearly. It's just that I'm trying to shape that experience for the reader. In my imagination, I can do that. If I just do the right words. Has one of your books ever surprised you, like in terms of, I thought it was going over here, but it turns out it sort of ended up over here? There have been surprises, of course, and enrichments along the way, but I I really do usually end up where I wanted to get to. You're headed that way and taking a trip at your leisure, and there are a lot of things that can happen to you and a lot of byways you can follow. And but I feel as though it's really the obligation, for me anyway, as a writer, to Make a kind of whole experience for the reader. Make something that has an intention, and my intention, and then I'm trying to shape a way for you to, to get it. But it's, I just have a sense of the dynamics that I'm playing with, and then I know where I want them to end, but I don't know how. The notes about the characters, are they mostly descriptive adjectives? Oh, no, they're things they believe in. So she believes in this, she cares about this, he cares about that. Then I sometimes just have them argue with each other, even though that might not even appear in the book. Or, but but it's sort of who they are, what their soul is like. So I also end up describing them too, of course. 
you know, if it's in the first person, then it's a little, I'm confined by the perception of my narrator as to what they're like and what they're thinking, which is why I don't like to write in the first person anymore. But it's mostly who they are, what they are like. Um, and then the appearance comes along, and then whatever the profession is or is not, those things come along. But it's basically knowing them, knowing their hearts. Kate always admonishes me, don't tell the author what he or she is trying to say. I mean, that's up to the author. But we feel such an intimate relationship to so many of your characters. And there's always this contrast, it seems to me, between what that character is thinking and what that character may be presenting to the world, the external impression that they're trying to leave. Is that always in your mind, the difference between the external and the internal thoughts? Oh, I feel it's just part of really, really knowing them. And I think also it's sort of the wonder of the third person as a way of narrating, where you can speak of someone and then you can suddenly turn and be in their head briefly. So you can say someone was thinking this and then just move into sort of little quick phrases that are essentially representations of the thoughts that this person is having as though you knew them because you do but i think it's a little bit technical in that sense the third person is just a great way to talk about a character and then just move right from sitting on his shoulder and looking at what he's looking at just moving right up into his head and just even with little phrases have these thoughts appear for him it's really part of my pleasure in it that is some of the pleasure really some of the pleasure and when I was doing the nonfiction book that I did about my father, one of the things I felt was the lack of that playfulness. Even when terrible things are happening and you're writing about, you're manipulating these characters. You're the director of your own book. You're telling them, you know, how to gesture. You're telling them what, what kind of enunciation they give to certain things or whether they speak in anger at this point or whether they're terrified of speaking at all. I mean, you get to be very, very imaginative, right? I mean, just directly. It's a very direct kind of art. I'm sensing when you talk about your character's sort of affection, I mean, you have to speak in so many different voices, but do you have to like all of your characters? I have to care about them. Eli is the classic example. I felt for him. I can't say that I liked him. I felt for him more as a young person than I did the solutions he'd come to for himself and the self-justification he'd come to for himself. So I didn't like him. One of your continuing themes, of course, is the dissection of marriage, the analysis of the institution. And one of my favorite quotes comes from While I Was Gone. You write, there are always compromises, of course, but they are at the heart of what it means to be married. And sometimes that is everything. Close quote. Have you progressed in that analysis over the 35 years, the what you thought about marriage, starting with good mother and then coming through to monogamy? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think there's some very simple progression. I mean, that is to say, I've tended to write about people sort of more or less at my stage in life. My characters have gotten older as I've gotten older, and their situations reflect that, I think. And I had a, you know, a long life as a single mom that was sort of fun um, in a way, but, I, you know, and then I got married, and that some of that was not so fun. Then we got divorced, and now we're back together again. So I think some of it is just, I'm not claiming to be grown up, but some of it is growing through a lot of these things. I went back and tried to find, Sue, one of your quotes at the end of one of the books, and I couldn't find it, but it left such an impression on me. A wife looking at her husband, and she's thinking, how did all this come about? How did I wind up here? We all go through this, I think. It points up the differences 
that you present in a difference between a character's private thoughts and what they present publicly. Mm-hmm. Not a discussion between them, but just a thought. Yes. Yeah. So I'm fascinated by audiobooks, and I noticed that you've read a lot of your own books. How do you decide, yes, this is a book I feel that I have to narrate because it can't be told by anyone else? Well, the first one I did that I read, and there wasn't much question for me, but I needed to be the one reading, was the book about my father. Because I just couldn't imagine someone else trying to create my voice and trying to be me. So I asked, and they said yes. And I enjoyed the process of it enormously. I was glad to read the book about my father, and I really felt it was it was part of finishing it. It seemed necessary to me. But what happened along the way was there's a little bit of acting involved. You try to find a way without changing your voice entirely, but of getting at the way someone speaks, at the tone of their voice, or and also you know just the. Um, I hear their voices in my head. And so this was this wonderful opportunity to make other people hear it. And I think I just liked that. I liked the process. And I really like it. I mean, I like it as a process. And I like it as a way, honestly, of controlling another part of the experience that the reader might be having. Or I imagine I'm controlling it. So instead of their reading it, I get to read it to them. And they have to hear it. They have to hear it the way I heard it. It's interesting because you read me the Lakeshore Limited and I really enjoyed that. Well, good. Yeah, I think that they're perfectly happy to let me do it. And I enjoy it a lot, too. It's also one of my favorite books, Sue, the Lakeshore Limited. And everybody, I think, when they're reading it thinks, okay, it's about a writer. So, okay, how autobiographical is this? How much is it? You know, I at one point had this lines from Cheever. Memorize, and I won't be able to reproduce it, but he defends, he says any comparison between autobiography and fiction debases fiction. <laughs> I just sort of like, yeah, it does. I just thought that was such a wonderful word. And then he goes on to, to say, you know, as you dream your book, so that's what he's really talking about, that it's like a dream. As you dream your book, you're on a ship you don't know, you're going toward a land you've never been to before. People around you are speaking a language you don't understand. But the woman on your right is your wife. And so he talks about this combination of, I can't remember the words exactly, but of what's real and comes from your life. And then the dreaming that you do about it, which is the way he considers it, is what fiction is made of, which is very different from recounting your life. It's interesting that you say that because I wanted to ask you this, and this is a question where I have to read because it involves your words. You write in monogamy, we read fiction because it suggests that life has a shape and we feel consoled by that notion. The idea that fictional narratives made life seem to matter, that it pushed away the meaninglessness of death. Is that why you write fiction? Well, I think it is in part to make a shape out of things that are pretty inchoate. I don't manage to do that in my own life, I assure you. But it's a pleasure to try and give things a shape. In one way or another, resolve a dilemma that you have invented, actually. A smarty pads question, Sue. The last book is Monogamy. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, of course, why that title? And, And does she believe in it? Bram, your central character, does not. Well, maybe he believes in it and wants to practice it, but can't. Why did you choose that title? I think, in a way, because it's an issue that sort of looms over the book for the issue of whether or not one can be or ought to be monogamous. And it seemed to me it also sort of raises the question for the reader about how they feel or how they 
consider how they look at these two people, one of whom since the marriage has been monogamous and the other of whom hasn't quite managed it, though he would have liked to. So I felt as though it was a very complicated thing. And I just wanted people to ponder how they felt about it. And then there was a way in which I thought of him as being truer to her in a certain way and more generous to her than she was able to be to him. He wanted to believe in it, but he couldn't be monogamous, that is. Yeah, but he just slipped a few times. And that was born of what I saw and was trying to convey. It's his great, great need to be loved, to have people just feel wonderful around him and, and respond to him. And I felt just enormous sympathy for him. And I felt sympathy for his needs. And I invented them after all. But I just hoped that I gave a reason for his great need for everyone around him to just find him wonderful and love. A question, too, I guess, for book clubs. If they were considering a Sue Miller novel, didn't know your work, what would be the first Sue Miller novel they ought to read? I guess it would depend. But I mean, I've always felt that While I Was Gone is the most kind of dramatic and probably enjoyable in a certain way because it moves fast and it has this drama in it and it's exciting in a certain way that others of them might be harder for people to read but if people are good readers um i really like the, the lakeshore limited i think the lakeshore limited is short it's tight uh, each of the characters is easy to encounter because you just get them alone in other words it's hard to choose Sue, it's a pleasure to talk to you. All the best. Oh, this has been so nice, so wonderful. So I wish you the best. All the best. Thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid-fire questions for Sue Miller. Sue, uh... Do you spend more time reading or writing? Equal. Book, e-reader, or audiobook? Book. How about the most influential book in your life? Jane Eyre. Do you write in longhand or on the computer? Longhand, and then on the computer. Is there a revered book that you have read that you wish you hadn't? (laughs) I can't be fast on this. I sort of have to go back and back and back. I'm sorry. There have been a couple of 
books. I'm not a fan of George Eliot. So let me just say Middlemarch. Yeah. And that makes me really uncouth in a lot of people's eyes, I think. So favorite book to read to your son when he was little? Really little. Sendak, anything by Sendak. Mickey in the Night Kitchen. That's it. What book is on your bucket list? It's more like what writers, I think, in a certain way. I sort of go through these you know, just try to read everything. I'm I'm reading everything by Tessa Hadley at this point, and I love her work. But I think I would like to just read more of the short stories of Tolstoy. I mean, I love Tolstoy is just an astonishment to me always. And I think his short stories are more, his novels are wonderful in parts, but I find some of them kind of, they're just, they, go, they last for a long time. But his short stories are really lovely, wonderful. Sue, do you read your reviews? I do. Do you take them to heart or do you just think that SOB doesn't know anything? <laughs> well, it's always more pleasant to read a review when the reviewer has liked your work. And so sometimes I just sort of, I, I don't take them to heart. My guiltiest reading pleasure is... I don't feel guilty about anything I read. I sometimes feel sorry that I did. What a waste of time. But I don't, I don't feel guilty. And finally, Sue, a question we took from Stephen Colbert. In five words... What would you like the rest of your life to be? No idea, because it's an issue right now. Our conversation was Sue Miller. Katie, what'd you take away from it? I love the way, I mean, when Sue Miller says it starts with character, and I spend a lot of time getting to know my character, and then you said, oh, so you write down what she likes or they like and they don't like, and she said, no, I write down, they believe in this, they probably don't like this. I remember learning about method acting when I was in high school. God love Bob Pridham, who was my drama teacher. He told us about method acting and about how you need to come up with decisions for your character, even though they'll never be expressed on stage. In fact, those decisions won't even matter. But it allows you to give a 360-degree view of the character you're playing in your head. I think what Sue does is method writing. She knows all 360 degrees of her character. If a motorcycle backfires, she knows which characters will jump up, which characters will not pay attention, and which characters will hit the deck. She knows, I think, her character so intimately that it allows her to put them in all kinds of situations and have them react in believable ways and intimate ways. I just love the way she talked about getting to know her characters and how long she does that and how important it is to her process. I must admit, in reading her books, I never look at the clock and think I've already been reading for an hour and I'm getting sleepy. She draws me in and she keeps me in. I was very interested in what Julia Glass, who we talked to a couple of weeks ago, said when she once was on a dais and, and speaking to a crowd as the warm-up act for Sue Miller. <laughs> and she said Sue made the remark that all of her characters she looks at as her employees. <laughs> which I thought was a really interesting way to think about your characters. And I get the feeling, as we talked about, that that those characters come alive in her mind and she begins to be even more fascinated with them than just the notes that she's taken about them. And the other thing that i really interested in, Eli, in While I Was Gone, is somebody who has killed somebody else. And she said, well, I wanted to give him a fair shot. I, I think that's a really... Nice way. I, I wanted to make him as understandable as I could. I'm paraphrasing her, but I think she does that so well with her characters. 
I think she does, too. And even one of my favorite books of Sue's, and you're right, she does have a dozen. The Senator's Wife, The World Below, The Distinguished Guest, Lakeshore Limited, The Arsonist, While I Was Gone. Also, she's written a book of short stories called Inventing the Abbots and Other Stories. And it's one of my favorite Sue Miller books. And I had no idea that she would be that talented at writing short stories. The idea that she can still create that intimacy between her readers and her characters without having 400 pages to do it, I think also speaks to her immense talent. I loved Inventing the Abbots. I thought it was, again, very intimate short stories that were really interesting character portraits. Yeah, that's interesting you say I hope Sue doesn't take offense. It was not my favorite. Really? Yeah, because I always feel she does so much better in my mind, and this is not, I'm not a critic, so I shouldn't do, I shouldn't do this. <laughs> when she can develop a character over mm. those 400 pages, mm-hmm. I like her writing better, which is not to say I didn't like Inventing the Abbots. I did. I just think that as a, with a full palette, of having a novel length that I like her books better. I I would mention one other book that I think is very good, and I don't have the title of it in front of me, but the nonfiction book. The Story of My Father? The Story of My Father is really a very, very moving book and a wonderful tribute to her dad. As I read it, I kept thinking, my parents have passed, and how lucky she is and he is to be able to write such a tribute to an individual, and she gives lasting meaning to his life. I thought it was a wonderful book. I love reading Sue's books because I don't know the characters when I start the books, and they make surprising choices. That happened a bit in The Good Mother. That happened a bit in Lakeshore Limited. There were things about the characters that the books opened that surprised me, and yet I knew that by the end of the book, I was going to understand completely why they made those choices at the outset, because Sue gives me such an incredible 360-degree view Mm. of the person that I feel like I know them almost as well as she does by the end of the book. And that comes back to the word intimate. You do feel Mm -hmm. so intimately involved with them. Well enough, which obviously is the case. We can go on about Sue Miller because we are both uh, such admirers of hers. Uh, We're going to do something a little different, this podcast. When we first started this, we got a call from somebody whose name is Zibby Owens, and she has her own podcast on the subject of books called Moms Don't Have Time to Read. It's a great title. It's called Moms Don't Have Time to Read, um, which I just love um, and and paints a very evocative picture <laughs> of who Zibby is. Well, I felt it was a little sexist, frankly. Uh, are you leaving me out? But she makes the point that it's for all people. The, the amount of work Kate and I put into this, not to pat ourselves on the back, but we put in an enormous amount of work to produce one of these each week. She does it every day. Every day. Um, I, I uh, get a life. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, she called us. She called us and said, welcome to the neighborhood. Um, I'd love to appear on your podcast. Would you appear on mine? And we said, well, of course, we'd love to. So we talked to her just the other day, Zibby Owens. Oh, Zibby being short, obviously, for Elizabeth. Here's our conversation. We welcome Zibby Owens to the bookcase, who contacted us right after we premiered. It was so nice of her. We looked at it as sort of a a neighbor coming over with some cake uh, in our virtual neighborhood. And we're so thankful to be welcomed into the neighborhood. Zibby is the host of the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read, which has been around for four years and has a little over 12 
hundred episodes. It's over 1300 now at this point, oh but yes, I do it every day. So seven <laughs> days a week. <laughs> well, I guess that's my first question is how do you do it every day and have time for anything else? Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I just do my best every day. And by the way, I absolutely would have sent some actual cake. If I had known, I would have teed up my email with some crumb cake. I have a family business on my husband's side. But anyway, I, yes, I have found time to do lots of other things. I also started my own publishing company last year. So I seem to be a glutton for punishment. I don't have any other explanation other than I, (laughs) I like to feel stressed. Zibby, I know how much work we put in to do one a week. And when we have told other people we're doing one a week, they say, how do you get time to do that? So one a day is beyond my ken. I cannot possibly imagine how you do that. Can you read the books? I don't get to read all the books, but I read some of the books and I read really quickly. I mean, I woke up this morning at 4.30 because I realized I hadn't read enough of one of the three books I'm doing today. So I woke up and read that until seven when my kids needed my attention more. I do my best, but I don't get to everything. But there's so much I love to hear from the authors anyway. So some episodes end up being more deep dive into the book and some are more about childhood. Some are more about process. Some are more about publishing itself or writing marketing. But I think that also makes it interesting because if every episode was a deep dive into the book, maybe it wouldn't be as varied and interesting, or maybe I'm just fooling myself. But anyway, this is what I've done. You know, as somebody who was also a mom during the pandemic and who came to hold the time that Mo Willems would come out with his daily podcast, his daily release of things to do with kids as sacrosanct. And I was so thankful to Mo Willems that he gave me something to do every day with my kids. So I'm sure so many of your listeners were thankful that you released every day because like most of us, you felt like time was melting plastic. Yes. I think it was also my own escape. I have four kids and I feel like when I was like, bye-bye, I have to do my job with the door closed right here. I mean, (laughs) there were some perks for me too. I got, my husband would help with the kids. I also did a daily Instagram live show during the pandemic every day at 11 where I interviewed uh, four authors live for 10 minutes. I know I'm like, and I started a book club and I started this online publication where authors would write their own essays. Yeah, it was a little bit nuts, but it did provide me with an escape. My husband's mother and grandmother both passed away from COVID within the first couple of months and his mother was sick for six weeks and we were in charge of her care remotely. It was horrendous, just totally traumatic. So honestly, having this to dive into was something incredibly helpful and healing for me. Well, you must be married to a saint if you can get that much free time to do all the things that you're doing. And then I read that you've got a book out, Book Ends, your own memoir, and you're going on a book tour. Are you going to be able to keep up the schedule on a book tour? That has been harder. (laughs) I've done a bunch of stops. So I'm divorced and remarried. So every other long weekend I have without the kids and I can do things like go to Seattle for the weekend and run all over the place or do a book fair in LA or go to Nashville. I've been trying, but I won't lie. This whole, not just the touring, but the added publicity for my own book has (laughs) toppled the delicate structure I have going with all the things, but I'm very grateful. When the time comes, you should give your adrenal glands to science. (laughs) Um, because they're going to want to study them. In doing 1,300 episodes, Abby, what have you learned? What has surprised you in talking to that whole 
universe of authors? Well, I actually got such an inside glance at the whole publishing process and what authors, all these things I didn't know about publishing and what publishing used to be and what it is now and what authors wish they had. I learned enough that I decided I had to start it all differently, that there should be some other way to get books out into the world, that this whole thing wasn't making sense the way it was set up. And I kept talking and talking about it and wondering like who was going to do something about it and is there anything we could do about it? And then I started wondering like, could that person be me? (laughs) I'm like, no, it couldn't be me. Then I'm like, well, why not me? Why shouldn't I try to do it? So I had to psych myself up for over a year. And then finally I was like, okay, well, I'm going to use everything that I didn't know about authors and publishing and the whole process and the effects of consolidation in the industry and budget cuts and all these different things. Like, what would I do if I was going to structure a publishing company? And I had my own books coming out along the way. I did have bookends, but I also did a children's book and two anthologies. So I got to see from the author side what I wish were different too. So that's what ended up making me start my publishing company, which honestly takes up most of the time. I've also learned that I think maybe 90% of authors have anxiety disorders, perhaps undiagnosed, (laughs) but I'm going to diagnose them as someone who has an anxiety disorder that I have like totally found my people because a whole group of people who operate with what if as the sort of the guiding question. (laughs) I get it. I ask that a hundred times a day. Well, what if I do that? What if she does that? What if I go here? Moms don't have time to read books. Do you just assume that we men have unlimited time to read? I do not assume that at all. And I always say, well, it's not just for moms. It's just that I'm a mom. I have four kids. This is just my perspective. And moms are very busy. And I also am sort of jokingly, I'm like, well, you know, I don't mean to exclude anyone, but if I could get the entire mom market listening to this podcast, I would feel pretty good. I actually have talked to several people along the way of starting a dad's don't have time to read books or just dad's don't have time to podcast. And now I have someone who really wants to do it, but he's he's too busy. So um, I'm waiting for him to have his time free up. It's hard for anybody to make time for anything anymore. I think that's the whole crux of it is life is short and to make time for anything we love or anything that has meaning, something else has to give. And we have to just claim the time for things that matter and things that enhance our lives. What's your favorite? I know that's a little like picking your favorite child, but what's your favorite book of all time? Favorite book of all time. Well, I will say my favorite genre is memoir. So there are many memoirs that I love and I love just escaping into someone's story. I usually say my favorite memoir is Danny Shapiro's Slow Motion because it's the first one I really read and connected with. And it set off my love of all these other books, including later books of hers like Inheritance and Hourglass and all of her other books. But yeah, that really set me off on the track of of connecting through story one-on-one. What do you do when you have an interview that's just a dud? <laughs> I'm hoping you're not thinking that about me. <laughs> no, no, we're looking for advice. We're the new kids on the block, so we're looking for like... Yeah, we're looking for advice. We haven't had one yet, but we fully anticipate that we will. So sometimes the energy combination is just not perfect. What I've started doing is if I can't find something that excites the person I'm interviewing, if it's not the book, I go off books, right? If we've gone through the book and I can tell they're bored talking about their book or they don't want to discuss writing or whatever, then sometimes I'm just like, okay, so like, what'd you have for breakfast? Or what'd you do last night? What do you like to do for fun? Like, let's forget about the stuff we should be talking to. And I just talk to them like we're at a dinner party 
or stuck in an elevator or whatever. Like, what would I say to this person? I'm always just trying to figure out like, who is this person? Like, what what information do I need so I have a, more of a sense of it? So sometimes I want to know where they grew up because it like, or I want to know about their siblings or I'm just trying to like get a, a sense. But sometimes even that doesn't work. And if it's really not that great, I just end it early. Zibby Owens, I, I'm tempted to start a podcast uh, with the title, I Don't Know How Zibby Owens Has Time to Read Books. Uh, <laughs> but we thank you very much. It's been good to talk to you and good luck with yours. And, and we're so pleased you contacted us. We, we're not sure anybody's listening. and We were certainly glad to hear that you were. Oh, my gosh, of course. And I'm excited <laughs> to have you come on my podcast. It'll be fun. Zibby Owens from the Moms Don't Have Time to Read daily podcast she makes me feel so lazy but a fun conversation so stay tuned because we're about to tell you the names of the folks who make the show what it is and afterwards we'll have a coda from sue miller to take us off the air the bookcase is a production of abc audio it is produced by david canada in conjunction with SureCan productions brenda salinas baker is our senior producer liz alessi is our executive producer and we want to give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. And as Kate mentioned, a final thought from Sue Miller. Okay. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I hope your listeners enjoy me as much as I've enjoyed you. So this has been great. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though... It's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.